Part Two of Chapter Seven of the Exploits of Brigadier Gerard by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Well, I had the dragoons behind me and the hussars in front. Never since Moscow have I seemed to be in such peril. But for the honour of the brigade, I had rather be cut down by a light cavalryman than by a heavy. I never drew bridle, therefore, or hesitated for an instant, but I let Violette have her head. I remember that I tried to pray as I rode, but I am a little out of practice at such things, and the only words I could remember were the prayer for fine weather, which we used at the school on the evening before holidays. Even this seemed better than nothing, and I was patterning it out, when suddenly I heard French voices in front of me. Ah, mon Dieu, but the joy went through my heart like a musket-ball. They were ours, our own dear little rascals from the corpse of Marmont. Round whisked my two dragoons and galloped for their lives, with the moon gleaming on their brass helmets, while I trotted up to my friends with no undue haste, for I would have them understand that though a hussar may fly, it is not in his nature to fly very fast. Yet I fear that Violette's heaving flanks and foam-spattered muzzle gave the lie to my careless bearing. Who should be at the head of the troop but old Bouvet, whom I saved at Leipzig? When he saw me, his little pink eyes filled with tears, and, indeed, I could not but shed a few myself at the sight of his joy. I told him of my mission, but he laughed when I said that I must pass through Saint-Lys. "'The enemy is there,' said he. "'You cannot go.' "'I prefer to go where the enemy is,' I answered. "'But why not go straight to Paris with your dispatch? "'Why should you choose to pass through the one place "'where you are almost sure to be taken or killed?' "'A soldier does not choose, he obeys,' said I, "'just as I had heard Napoleon say it. "'Old Bouvet laughed in his wheezy way "'until I had to give my mustachios a twirl "'and look him up and down in a manner which brought him to reason. "'Well,' said he, "'you had best come along with us, "'for we are all bound for Saint-Lys. "'Our orders are to reconnoitre the place. "'A squadron of Poniatowski's Polish lancers are in front of us, if you must ride through it, it is possible that we may be able to go with you. So away we went, jingling and clanking through the quiet night, until we came up with the poles. Fine old soldiers, all of them, though a trifle heavy for their horses. It was a treat to see them, for they could not have carried themselves better if they had belonged to my own brigade. We rode together until, in the early morning, we saw the lights of Saint-Lys. A peasant was coming along with a cart, and from him we learned how things were going there. His information was certain, for his brother was the mayor's coachman, and he had spoken with him late the night before. There was a single squadron of Cossacks, or a polk, as they call it in their frightful language, quartered upon the mayor's house, which stands at the corner of the market-place, and is the largest building in the town. A whole division of Prussian infantry was encamped in the woods to the north, but only the Cossacks were in Saint-Lys. Ah, what a chance to avenge ourselves upon those barbarians, whose cruelty to our poor country folk was the talk at every campfire. We were into the town like a torrent, hacked down the vedettes, rode over the guard, and were smashing in the doors of the mayor's house before they understood that there was a Frenchman within twenty miles of them. We saw horrid heads at the windows, heads bearded to the temples with tangled hair and sheepskin caps and silly gaping mouths, 
hurrah hurrah they shrieked and fired with their carbines but our fellows were into the house and at their throats before they had wiped the sleep out of their eyes it was dreadful to see how the poles flung themselves upon them like starving wolves upon a herd of fat bucks for as you know the poles have a blood feud against the cossacks the most were killed in the upper rooms whither they had fled for shelter and the blood was pouring down into the hall like rain from a roof they are terrible soldiers these poles though i think they are a trifle heavy for their horses man for man they are as big as kellerman's cuirassiers their equipment is of course much lighter since they are without the cuirass backplate and helmet well it was at this point that i made an error a very serious error it must be admitted up to this moment i had carried out my mission in a manner which only my modesty prevents me from describing as remarkable but now i did that which an official would condemn and a soldier excuse there is no doubt that the mayor was spent but still it is true that i might have galloped on through saint-lee and reached the country where i should have had no enemy between me and paris but what hussar can ride past a fight and never draw rein it is to ask too much of him besides i thought that if violette had an hour of rest i might have three hours the better at the other end then on the top of it came those heads at the windows with their sheepskin hats and their barbarous cries i sprang from my saddle threw violette's bridle over a rail-post and ran into the house with the rest it is true that i was too late to be of service and that i was nearly wounded by a lance thrust from one of these dying savages still it is a pity to miss even the smallest affair for one never knows what opportunity for advancement may present itself i have seen more soldierly work in outpost skirmishes and little gallop and hack affairs of the kind than in any of the emperor's big battles when the house was cleared i took a bucket of water out for violette and our peasant guide showed me where the good mayor kept his fodder my faith but the little sweetheart was ready for it then i sponged down her legs and leaving her still tethered i went back into the house to find a mouthful for myself so that i should not need to halt again until i was in paris and now i come to the part of my story which may seem singular to you although i could tell you at least ten things every bit as queer which have happened to me in my lifetime you can understand that to a man who spends his life in scouting and vedette duties on the bloody ground which lies between two great armies there are many chances of strange experiences i'll tell you however exactly what occurred old bouvet was waiting in the passage when i entered and he asked me whether we might not crack a bottle of wine together my faith we must not be long said he there are ten thousand of tailman's prussians in the woods up yonder where is the wine i asked ah you may trust two hussars to find where the wine is said he and taking a candle in his hand he led the way down the stone stairs into the kitchen when we got there we found another door which opened on to a winding stair with the cellar at the bottom the cossacks had been there before us as was easily seen by the broken bottles littered all over it however the mare was a bon vivant and i do not wish to have a better set of bins to pick from chambertin graves alicante white wine and red sparkling and still they lay in pyramids peeping coyly out of sawdust old bouvet stood with his candle looking here and peeping there purring in his throat like a cat before a milk-pail 
He had picked upon a burgundy at last, and had his hand outstretched to the bottle when there came a roar of musketry from above us, a rush of feet, and such a yelping and screaming as I have never listened to. The Prussians were upon us. Bouvet is a brave man. I will say that for him. He flashed out his sword, and away he clattered up the stone steps, his spurs clinking as he ran. I followed him, but just as we came out into the kitchen passage, a tremendous shout told us that the house had been recaptured. "'It is all over!' I cried, grasping at Bouvet's sleeve. "'There is one more to die!' he shouted, and away he went like a madman up the second stair. In effect, I should have gone to my death also had I been in his place, for he had done very wrong in not throwing out his scouts to warn him if the Germans advanced upon him. For an instant I was about to rush up with him, and then I bethought myself that, after all, I had my own mission to think of, and that if I were taken the important letter of the Emperor would be sacrificed. I let Bouvet die alone, therefore, and I went down into the cellar again, closing the door behind me. Well, it was not a very rosy prospect down there either. Bouvet had dropped the candle when the alarm came, and I, pawing about in the darkness, could find nothing but broken bottles. At last I came upon the candle, which had rolled under the curve of a cask, but try as I would with my tinder-box I could not light it. The reason was that the wick had been wet in a puddle of wine, so, suspecting that this might be the case, I cut the end off with my sword. Then I found that it lighted easily enough. But what to do I could not imagine. The scoundrels upstairs were shouting themselves hoarse, several hundred of them from the sound, and it was clear that some of them would soon want to moisten their throats. There would be an end to a dashing soldier, and of the mission, and of the medal. I thought of my mother, and I thought of the emperor. It made me weep to think that the one would lose so excellent a son, and the other the best light cavalry officer he ever had since La Salle's time. But presently I dashed the tears from my eyes, "'Courage!' I cried, striking myself upon the chest. "'Courage, my brave boy! "'Is it possible that one who has come safely from Moscow "'without so much as a frostbite "'will die in a French wine-cellar?' "'At the thought I was up on my feet "'and clutching at the letter in my tunic, "'for the crackle of it gave me courage. "'My first plan was to set fire to the house "'in the hope of escaping in the confusion. "'My second, to get into an empty wine-cask.' I was looking round to see if I could find one, when suddenly, in the corner, I espied a little low door, painted of the same grey colour as the wall, so that it was only a man with quick sight who would have noticed it. I pushed against it, and at first I imagined that it was locked. Presently, however, it gave a little, and then I understood that it was held by the pressure of something on the other side. I put my feet against a hogshead of wine, and I gave such a push that the door flew open, and I came down with a crash upon my back, the candle flying out of my hands, so that I found myself in darkness once more. I picked myself up and stared through the black archway into the gloom beyond. There was a slight ray of light coming from some slit or grating. The dawn had broken outside, and I could dimly see the long, curving sides of several huge casks, which made me think that perhaps this was where the mayor kept his reserves of wine while they were maturing. At any rate, it seemed to be a safer hiding place than the outer cellar. So gathering up my candle, I was just closing the door behind me when I suddenly saw something which filled me with amazement 
and even, I confess, with the smallest little touch of fear. I have said that at the further end of the cellar there was a dim grey fan of light striking downward from somewhere near the roof. Well, as I peered through the darkness, I suddenly saw a great tall man skip into this belt of daylight and then out again into the darkness at the further end. My word, I gave such a start that my shako nearly broke its chin-strap. It was only a glance, but nonetheless I had time to see that the fellow had a hairy Cossack cap on his head, and that he was a great long-legged, broad-shouldered brigand with a sabre at his waist. My faith, even Etienne Gerard was a little staggered at being left alone with such a creature in the dark. But only for a moment. Courage, I thought, am I not a hussar, a brigadier too, at the age of thirty-one, and the chosen messenger of the emperor? After all, this skulker had more cause to be afraid of me than I of him. And then I understood that he was afraid. Horribly afraid. I could read it from his quick step and his bent shoulders as he ran among the barrels like a rat making for its hole. And, of course, it must have been he who had held the door against me, and not some packing-case or wine-cask as I had imagined. He was the pursued then, and I the pursuer. Aha! I felt my whiskers bristle as I advanced upon him through the darkness. He would find that he had no chicken to deal with, this robber from the north. For the moment I was magnificent. At first I had feared to light my candle, lest I should make a mark of myself. But now, after cracking my shin over a box and catching my spurs in some canvas, I thought the bolder course the wiser. I lit it, therefore, and then I advanced with long strides, my sword in my hand. Come out, you rascal, I cried. Nothing can save you. You will at last meet with your deserts. I held my candle high, and presently I caught a glimpse of the man's head staring at me over a barrel. He had a gold chevron on his black cap, and the expression of his face told me in an instant that he was an officer and a man of refinement. Monsieur, he cried in excellent French, I surrender myself on a promise of quarter. But if I do not have your promise, I will then sell my life as dearly as I can. Sir, said I, a Frenchman knows how to treat an unfortunate enemy. Your life is safe. With that he handed his sword over the top of the barrel, and I bowed with the candle on my heart. Whom have I the honour of capturing? I asked. I am the Count Boutkin of the Emperor's own Don Cossacks, said he. I came out with my troop to reconnoitre Saint-Lee, and as we found no sign of your people, we determined to spend the night here. And would it be an indiscretion, I asked, if I were to inquire how you came into the back cellar? Nothing more simple, said he. It was our intention to start at early dawn. Feeling chilled after dressing, I thought that a cup of wine would do me no harm, so I came down to see what I could find. As I was rummaging about, the house was suddenly carried by assault, so rapidly that by the time I had climbed the stairs it was all over. It only remained for me to save myself, so I came down here and hid myself in the back cellar, where you have found me. I thought of how old Bouvet had behaved under the same conditions, and the tears sprang to my eyes as I contemplated the glory of France. Then I had to consider what I should do next. It was clear that this Russian count, being in the back cellar while we were in the front one, had not heard the sounds which would have told him that the house was once again in the hands of his own allies. 
If he should once understand this, the tables would be turned, and I should be his prisoner, instead of he being mine. What was I to do? I was at my wit's end, when suddenly there came to me an idea so brilliant that I could not but be amazed at my own invention. Count Butkin, said I, I find myself in a most difficult position. And why? he asked. Because I have promised you your life. His jaw dropped a little. You would not withdraw your promise, he cried. If the worst comes to the worst, I can die in your defence, said I, but the difficulties are great. What is it, then? he asked. I will be frank with you, said I. You must know that our fellows, and especially the Poles, are so incensed against the Cossacks that the mere sight of the uniform drives them mad. They precipitate themselves instantly upon the wearer and tear him limb from limb. Even their officers cannot restrain them. The Russian grew pale at my words and the way in which I said them. But this is terrible, said he. Horrible, said I. If we were to go up together at this moment, I cannot promise how far I could protect you. I am in your hands, he cried. What would you suggest that we should do? Would it not be best that I should remain here? That worst of all. And why? Because our fellows will ransack the house presently, and then you would be cut to pieces. No, no, I must go and break it to them. But even then, when once they see that accursed uniform, I do not know what may happen. Should I then take the uniform off? Excellent, I cried. Hold, we have it. You will take your uniform off and put on mine. That will make you sacred to every French soldier. It is not the French, I fear, so much as the Poles. But my uniform will be a safeguard against either. How can I thank you, he cried. Uh, but you, what are you to wear? I will wear yours. And perhaps fall a victim to your generosity? It is my duty to take the risk, I answered. But I have no fears. I will ascend in your uniform. A hundred swords will be turned upon me. Hold, I will shout, I am the Brigadier Gerard. Then they will see my face, they will know me, and I will tell them about you. Under the shield of these clothes you will be sacred. His fingers trembled with eagerness as he tore off his tunic. His boots and breeches were much like my own, so there was no need to change them. But I gave him my hussar jacket, my dolman, my shako, my sword-belt and my sabre-tash, while I took in exchange his high sheepskin cap with the gold chevron, his fur-trimmed coat and his crooked sword. Be it well understood that in changing the tunics I did not forget to change my thrice-precious letter also from my old one to my new. With your leave, said I, I shall now bind you to a barrel. He made a great fuss over this, but I have learned in my soldiering never to throw away chances, and how could I tell that he might not, when my back was turned, see how the matter really stood and break in upon my plans? He was leaning against a barrel at the time, so I ran six times round it with a rope, and then tied it with a big knot behind. If he wished to come upstairs, he would at least have to carry a thousand litres of good French wine for a knapsack. I then shut the door of the back cellar behind me, so that he might not hear what was going forward and tossing the candle away I ascended the kitchen stair. End of part two of chapter seven.